You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Shalom. This is Standing in Two Worlds with Professor Dr. Sam Juni in Yerushalayim, Erekaitish. I'm Avram Kivalevich. Dr. Juni, I know that you, I think it's probably correct to say that when we speak about this invention of the automobile, it still stands even 120 or 130 years after the first automobile started being um, uh, assembled and disseminated to the world. It still stands, I think, as one of the great inventions that changed the world more even than the iPhone or or the the PC or or anything in terms of how human beings interact with each other in terms of how cities uh, develop and I think what from your perspective what might be fascinating and that's what I want to try to probe you your brain on is how it's really changed our mentalities when we get into a car, uh, how much we value cars. Um, I also would like you to discuss, and again, I'm giving you a whole bunch of stuff here. I know you're going to say I've given you a whole um, uh, feast to to nibble on and discuss, but I want you also to discuss something that I've heard that societies that are used to um, listening, societies that are used to submitting, societies that are used to following the rules, um, have been able to accept the idea of mass transit, of not having your own personal car, and are doing a better job in terms of eliminating that combustion engine that's putting all this pollution and and, and, and ruining the planet and can go into mass transit. Whereas other types of countries, such as the United States, which is not only big, but is also uh, founded with a spirit of individualism, people do not want to give up their cars. People feel those cars are, are, are bonded to them. It's, a, it's, it's an important part of their identity, despite the fact that those same people will tell you how bad it is, the proliferation of so many automobiles, and how the planet would be better without them. But yet they are still, whether it's an electric car or whatever it is, they, they, need, they are stuck to those cars and how much it means to them. The last thing I'd like you to discuss is the phenomenon which we have here, and I'm sure in Eretz Yisrael as well, which is road rage and accidents that occur. Um, I know Eretz Yisrael is um, has been famous. I don't know. I don't have the statistics in front of me. As usual, I didn't do my homework, but I think there is a, a pretty well-known uh, principle. I don't know if the principle is the right word. I take that back. Well-known fact that the the amount of accidents per number of people in Eretz Yisrael is much higher uh, than it is uh, in many of the other countries that are similar in terms of uh, the type of standard of living and the amount of cars there. All right, so that's your topic. Go ahead. Okay, thank you. This is not a topic. This is a potpourri, and I will try to some of it. Okay. Let me just make a couple of comments. Okay, so we, we did make Aliyah five years ago, but uh, essentially my expertise or pseudo expertise on this topic um, goes back to 2009 when we started doing research here in Israel on a regular basis. So 
I can form my uh, my impressions um, on the data that we do know dating back to not so long ago, 21 years ago, 22 years ago. Okay. Second of all, I want to take exception to you saying that you don't do your homework. I would say that as a discussant, you do your homework much better than any other discussant I've ever been with on any symposium. So <laughs> okay. give you credit for that. And um, you mentioned that, of course, uh, people are getting more and more used to cars, dependent on cars, or integrating cars into their lives, which is happening in Israel also, albeit more slowly than in the West. But I would say that the cities over here have not kept up with it at all. You really cannot um, move around in Yerushalayim or in Tel Aviv with a car at all. Parking is impossible. Um, Traffic is impossible. We have narrow streets. You really can't count. You can go between cities pretty well, but within cities, it's very hard to live on a daily basis with a car. Most people here give up the car, at least for their daily lives, even though they have to be in several places and rely on cabs. Or, you know, if they're, they're doing something that lends itself to, they use motorized um, uh, cycles and things like that. But no, it's not amenable to car living these cities. You cannot live in Yerushalayim and Tel Aviv on a daily basis with a car. You would spend most of your time on the road. Right, but oh, you, you do have one, though. You have one in a garage somewhere, I, don't you? Oh, no, no. I have a car. I have a car. And um, we rely on, on that a lot when we have to go to different places, but within the city itself, it's much easier to take a cab or to take public transportation. Or in my case, I bike. I bike a lot, just simply for, um, that's my style. It's always been my style to be a biker. So, all right. So those, those are little tidbits away. Um, so um, let me just say as a general uh, point, um, people in cars often assume a, a sub-level functioning of their personality where they basically don't um, pay any attention to, I would say, higher order levels of functioning. In other words, in a car, you're first of all um, an entity that's very similar to those around you. It's a great equalizer because a car is a car is a car. Any car can hit the other. Any car can go ahead of the other. The status is not so much there. You could have a studier looking car or a faster car. So if you are on a say, on the Autobahn, you can go faster than somewhere else. But in the city itself, functionally, cars are basically equal. I mean, to, to a greater or lesser extent. And that psychologically puts you at the same level as others. So often, um, for instance, um, I would not feel comfortable being at a party of low lowlifes and schmoozing with them because I say, you know, I have nothing to do with you, okay? I, leave me alone. This is not my circle. I'd rather go somewhere else or, or go sit in my room and read a book. Whereas on the road, you are forced to interact at a certain level with people who maybe think differently than you and have different values than you are. And it comes up in driving a lot. Do you cut in? Don't you cut in? How much respect do you give to somebody else? Do you um, hog the road? Don't you hog the road? It reduces you almost to a, um, a, a herd kind of mentality rather than someone who has individual values. And as you mentioned, road rage is where it becomes extremely um, uh, prominent. Um, I've been a victim of not assault, but actually rage in terms of people trying to get me to crash or whatever. And I don't know, I can't say I know exactly what happened. I remember once on the Skajakura, which is a highway in Buffalo where I used to live. 
I mean, there's a, uh, a car went out ahead of me and short stopped a couple of times trying to get me to crash into him. And obviously I must have either blinked or not blinked or passed him or cut in. I don't, I'm not a big cutter in there, but I must have done something. And then the reaction is to do something that probably would have been as dangerous for this person as it would have been for me. And that basically says that um, in moments of this kind of, um, if you want to call it interpersonal, it's not quite interpersonal, it's interobject interactions, what they're reduced to is something that's um, um, not very reasonable. And I was there thinking at a certain level, which is not um, sophisticated, it was basically this person aggrieved me, I have to get back at him, even if it ends up killing me. It's kind of odd. Um, also, what's interesting is that the amount of rage that comes out in road rage sometimes is not proportionate to what happened. Okay, so let's say somebody did not let you into a lane when you wanted to get in ahead of the curve. Okay, so that might, uh, under normal circumstances, um, merit a reprimand and maybe even an insult. But the rage that comes up, like coming out at you at, at, a, at a red light with a tire iron about to maybe even breaking windows or getting at you, there's something not commensurate with the experience there, which, which it kind of, the image it gives me is that what the um, um, anonymity, so to speak, or the dehumanization, I don't mean it in, in bold terms, I just mean it takes away anything special about you and puts you just as a car between other cars, reduces you to the kind of interactions that may exist within species that are much less sophisticated, where they have very few rules. It's like you're either prey or you are a, um, a, a predator and I have to get what I want to at the fastest time. Those kinds of considerations and the humanity almost flies away. And I have to say, I've had similar experiences here online in supermarkets or getting onto a bus where maybe because there's such a big congestion of people or everybody is in, like when you're in the supermarket, your status of wherever you are is reduced as a person. You're basically just a customer and the clerk will deal with you regardless of how uh, credentialed you are or how smart you are or how sophisticated you are. So you're reduced to that level. And then people also assume that you're at that level and, you know, cutting in in front of someone or deliberately knocking over somebody's groceries you can get ahead. That's my Sambachalian. That happens all the time over here. And essentially, because you are in the situation where your individuality is minimized and you just become one of a general horde, almost an anthropological horde, not necessarily belonging to something that's a more sophisticated species. So I put the road rage and I would say the behavior at buses, or on, on, um, on, um, at supermarkets, um, at basically the same level. Yeah. So really, what you've uh, marked, what you've mapped out here, is that one leads to the other. That this uh, equalizing, this sense of getting in the car and basically being part of humanity, getting to their job, uh, being part of that either rush hour traffic in the morning or. Uh, weekend traffic, uh, going to vacation sites, that in one sense you could look out and say, look, I'm, we're all together. But what that does is it eliminates, like you said, some higher functioning. It eliminates the same person would probably be a wonderful sophisticate. Uh, he might even be a professor who would teach. He might even be a doctor 
who would minister uh, lovingly to his patients. And yet, when he's in that situation that sort of equalizes us, our worst elements come out. And as we've talked about on this on this program, we've talked about that aggression and that, that natural aspect that you say is so part of, of, of people. It sounds like there's, besides the environmental issues that I raised before, it sounds like this is not such a great idea, right? Because even though you're right, on a bus, I want my seat, but it seems to be multiplied when you put a whole bunch of people in the driving wheel and, and, and the chances for the cutoff, the chances for the lack of respect or speeding ahead of someone or getting in their lane is multiplied. I think what you have uh, said here is another great argument for the elimination of cars from our life, right? Because it doesn't, right? Are, are there positives that you would bring out that you think might be uh, significant about what, I think you agree with me, although you didn't mention it, that this has been one of the most incredible uh, changes in, in humanity. Uh, uh, the idea of the, the insertion of cars into our lives. Wouldn't you say that what we're saying now is probably a, uh, a rationale to, to maybe eliminate it and push them away? Because what is it helping, right? Um, well, I, there's no question that it's it's mighty convenient. Um, I would say that uh, I know people who've come here, people who are much wealthier than we are, who basically said, okay, we're going to go along with the norm here and not have a car. And um, I would say that when they have to go somewhere, um, it takes them three times as long as it takes us. They cannot decide spontaneously. Mean, I remember like Esther and I were involved in a really, a really heavy treadmill. So we would sometimes get a call. We're sitting in Tel Aviv and get a call. Okay, um, there is this particular, um, um, well, the Messiah of a certain group or a certain kind of sheikh is available to meet you now. It's three hours away. Um, can you get there by this afternoon? And I would just get somebody to cover a class for me and say, yes, I'll be there. Or let's say something comes up, we forgot to tell you, we're having a, a war tonight for uh, my um, um, first cousin, right? And B'nai Brak. We're there within an hour. If you call somebody else, they have to plan four and a half hours to that, get to the bus, get to this. And so I, I think it's it's terribly convenient. Um, people here um, and people who are my friends go shopping with a shopping cart and that's all they can take, right? But I'll do is go and fill up the whole car. So there is a way of life. I wouldn't, what you are pointing out is that there's a payoff that, I mean, not talking about the environmental issues, there is a payoff that you basically are going to lose a lot of humanity by becoming an extension of a mechanized entity, which is a car. Right. So uh, look, there's obviously a medium here. First of all, even what we're doing now, what we have been doing for the last 24 episodes, what we all know, the Zoom life, has in many ways, and it's going to stay with us even after we all get the magic elixir in our veins of the vaccine. Because, and, and therefore, it isn't going to be such an imperative to be there in an hour because 
there's going, I believe, and I, I think many people, sociologists agree with me, there's going to be this hybrid of some people will be here physically and a lot of other people will be here on Zoom and maybe there'll be multiple cameras. So the necessity of being there, obviously the essential people will make those arrangements. But the idea of everybody driving and arriving, I, 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 we don't necessarily see that as such a great imperative. The second thing, uh, Sam, is that Yes, there will definitely be private cars. There will be car services. And there might be a premium price. You'll have to pay for that. But it's clearly outweighed by the cost of insurance, the cost of garaging, the cost of having uh, for the environment. So there will be – we're not talking about the total elimination of the automobile. Um, There will be these maybe electric cars and things that are around. So when you do need to get to someplace quick, just like all the Manhattanites know in terms of hailing a cab and getting where they need to go really quick when it's really necessary and they won't go in the subway, that option will always be there. And and, um, so uh, what I would suggest, and one of the reasons I want you to respond on this, if you don't mind, is – not just the, the the civilization numbing equalizing. What about the serenity that some people say they have with their driving? I, I, there's people who feel that they become a mensch when they drive in. They're able to uh, get their game face on. They're able to uh, process things that have happened. Many people look at that drive as something that's necessary. I don't know if you've heard patients or other friends of yours talk about this, about what the driving does. And and, and even the idea of being uh, of, of getting in that car, what it, what it does for the person in a positive way. Maybe that's what we can't we can't let go of. So um, what's your response to that? Okay. I, I can relate to that basically in terms of the <laughs> reactions I've gotten from people, one of the, there's two things that come up. One of them is basically an extension that we talked about before in that um, driving is a welcome change from the day-to-day life where you have to consider all kinds of um, higher order interests. Here, the thing, you have a gas pedal, you have a brake pedal, you have a road and you go. And basically the dehumanization, so to speak, is what people cherish because they have to get out of that because it can be quite daunting to be cognizant of all kinds of values and issues. Here you have very, very few variables. There's a road, there's the tires, there's a motor, and you go and you think of nothing else. It's almost like people who mindlessly um, like to watch um, certain kinds of TV shows where they don't even pay attention to the details. It just takes their mind, so to speak, for a spin literally, and that keeps you out of it. Um, The other um, issue, which is something that's become moot as cell phones have become so much part of our lives, is that driving would be a way of being out of touch. In other words, when you are in the office, you are at the mercy of your, uh, shall we say, your social creditors, those whom you owe homage or responses or responsibility to. So I remember myself, I used to do long distance drives before um, telephones, uh, before cell phones were around. And I remember that I would like to be coming, let's say from Buffalo to New York, right? And I would be out of touch. I would stop off at, um, at Liberty at a cafe to get on the phone and see what I'm missing. And I'd stop off at another phone at the foot of the Brooklyn Bridge. But otherwise it was four hours six hours and a shot where I was out of touch. And it was kind of um, refreshing 
you know, I, for now, I'm just me. I am not attached to anybody else. It gives you almost a chance to, um, to uh, recalibrate yourself as to, okay, here I am. So the long drive sometimes is a time to think, used to be, but again, with cell phones, it's finished. But before the cell phones, there was a time to to basically get in touch with yourself and be able to think for yourself clearly for a while about your goals, about your assessments of what's going on, without having to respond to the to, to the various um, uh, constant uh, um, tugs of of living in the in an interleaved society with other people. Right. So so and, and I think that let me just add two points to that. Um, I think there's a difference, especially the way you described it. I mean, I, I've gone that route as well, that Route 17, uh, uh, winding down, I guess, um, uh, from Buffalo uh, to hit the throughway eventually down. Um, and it's a beautiful road. Uh, it's, it's the road that takes you to the Catskills if you want. And there's something I think about driving especially as I've lived in Texas and other places where there's a big expanse and you talk about becoming just wheels and, and the motor, but there's also what, what hits you uh, the same thing that people make those commercials for the pathfinder. No, the, the, the vistas, the images uh, they're there, whether it's the sun rising or the mountains or whatever you're driving at when you, when you're driving in a rural area, there is something it's it's not like going for a, a nature walk with your binoculars, but there is something there that you are, if not bonding with nature, but you are definitely it, it's more of your it's more in your mind than it would be when if you would just be walking down the street uh, to get to the office in order to to get to your cubicle. So I think that there is something there that that helps you recalibrate yourself. There's something about being out there. Uh, in a sense, uh, the other thing I would I would say to you, and I, I know you're going to respond in a minute, is that you can turn the damn thing off. I know that everybody expects the cell phone to be on, and everyone expects all the phones uh, are now obviously with Bluetooth capability in your car, able to be connected to your car. And I'm the same way. Wait, I want to. He- I'm going to hear you in my car. You're going to come through the speaker, but we all can stand back and turn it off and say. We're not going to be available and still be able to get that benefit that you had. But go ahead. Yeah, well, first of all, you don't always have the option of saying you're not available if you have a um, mortgager in your life saying, what do you mean? You know, you have to be available in case whatever comes up. You know, it can be either a boss or a spouse or a child or a parent saying you can't just do that. I mean, there are. The whole, the whole world is revolving around you. I, I wanted to give you just a counterpoint to connecting with nature. So I remember I myself used to commute from upstate to New York City, which in those days took about, I don't know, nine hours or so. And I remember I had a choice of going through the scenic roads that you just mentioned or taking an hour longer and going on the throughway, which is quite lifeless. I chose the throughway. I chose the throughway. I chose the right lane and I stayed there for hours straight through without thinking. And I remember arriving at my destination and saying, wow, I just remember getting in the car. 
In other words, I literally turned off. So I took it in terms of recalibrating. I actually saw myself as resetting myself. Like I'm purging everything. Like for the next eight hours, I've stopped existing or paying any kind of fealty to all these various things going on. And I'm just like at ground zero, which kind of helped me. So yes, I mean, I, I can connect, although I'm not such an artistic person myself, I can connect to to people who um, relate to the wonders of nature when they're alone, when they're just with a car driving along. But to me, it's more a form of, should we say, um, desamization, dejunization. I stop being me and I'm just like empty. I'm just out there. And it helps because you need to clean up the place every now and then. You can't leave stuff lying all over in your mind. This is a cleanup. And then sure enough, it'll repopulate within the next couple of hours. And I I think you agree that even if, you know, for our, our environmentalist friends, even if we would come up with a incredibly functional, uh, efficient mass transit option, what you just talked about wouldn't happen because part of what allows you the cleansing is the fact that it's just Sam Juni or Avram Kivalevich alone in that vehicle. And that's, although there might be others in cars that you don't see their faces, you do have a sense of being separate, which allows that type of process to occur within mm-hmm. you, which I don't think would occur even with the best earbuds available sitting next to someone in a mass transit comfortable seat. It's just not going to happen. There's a, and, and maybe that's a benefit. Again, whether it's worth the accidents, as we know, as I mentioned in narrative Israel, the accident rate being was it being what it is. So let me just go, let's go, let's finish off with two points. One point is that I think, and this is my own vested interest, um, I discovered the the joy of podcasts, and maybe I even got my own ideas about how to do podcasts, which Baruch Hashem, you've helped me so much in, by listening to them while I was driving in for my 30-minute commute into Newark every day. Everyone knows the yeshiva of Newark. I live 30 minutes away. It shouldn't be that long, but the morning traffic was made it that long. And listening to podcasts, I think, has become very standard. So in terms of just turning off or becoming soulless, I think people are able, and maybe they're distracted, maybe they, maybe that's, maybe we shouldn't be so controversial not to distract people when they're driving, but I think that has also become very much of a routine for many people, that the drive allows you not only to, to purge, but also to listen to that program that, that you wouldn't have time for otherwise, uh, to hear the sheer, uh, and, 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 and I think I don't. I don't have um, statistics about accidents, but something tells me there's. You probably have less accidents that way than by doing business. Like in other words, what you were talking about is having the cell phone on and talking to your boss, talking to your daughter, talking to your wife, uh, making arrangements. There's another thing when you can actually, whether it's turning on the radio in the old-fashioned way, or else, but also bringing information into your mind that will sort of stay with you in a positive way that you wouldn't have time for otherwise. And I think that's an, a, another advantage uh, because it, I think it, 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 it deepens your mind. Now, of course, you could have that sitting in a mass transit way as well. But there is something I think that's very beautiful about someone lecturing to you when you're thinking about it. And I think that that's a positive thing. 
the last thing I'm going to ask you about, and if you could really discuss, is why you think in Eretz Yisrael there is um, people. I'll say it in Yiddish, you know, as as I mean, they drive like maniacs, and you've driven in Brooklyn and New York. You you've seen maniacal driving. Why in Eretz Yisrael does it seem those that do have the cars, when you get up there in the highways going up to the north, why is it that they, they're, they're such a uh, preponderance of accidents? Why is it that you think Israelis are so such aggressive, horrible drivers? Yeah. Okay, that's that's an interesting point. So I think that there are two things going on here. First of all, the basic assumption that you're not functioning as a full human being, so to speak, when you're in the car, you're basically an, a um, a lower order species, shall I say, okay. where, where there are very few variables involved. And a lot of those are Darwinian variables. Who's going to win and who's going to lose, even though the, that's not a case. It's not like if you don't get there within two minutes of, of your arrival time that you're going to lose your uh, your, your dwelling or your spouse or your fortune, but that kind of mentality is there. There aren't too many variables saying, yes, I would prefer to do it, but animals don't think that way. Animals would say, I need to get it. It's either or. Everything is an either or. Secondly, I mean, Israelis are very much um, a pro-risk. There's a certain uh, almost um, a, a, a sense of accentuated living when you take a risk. And I've seen many people who are involved in extreme sports speak of that as well, that risk-taking risk kind of enhances your sense of being to some extent. And people, I mean, I've seen drivers here repeatedly pass someone else on a narrow curved road on the side of a cliff, where if a truck is coming against you, you are dead. There's no question. If you only will be dead, or will the person you're passing be dead as well because you're passing it, passing him? Possibly, possibly. But um, so the risk taking here is very high, and um, I think I, I'm not sure about this. I see it much more in men than in women, and I'm wondering whether this is almost a programming dealing with their days in Sahal and the army, where they were taught: look, when you have a goal. You put risk to the side. You're told to do this. You don't think, what are the dividends? Or what are the payoffs? You just have to do it. And somehow they they um, switch into this mode on the road, which I don't quite understand. Maybe it evokes. Maybe everybody has a little bit PTSD here. And anything which looks like competition or strife evokes some kind of flashback to the um, uh, risk situation in the army where you deliberately are supposed to s- suspend your better judgment based on what the goal that's given by the person in charge of the operation, but they definitely take risks that are outrageous. And I'm not talking about, I'm talking about taking risks, let's say, of you're not going to pay the 20, the, the couple of shekels for the meter and the risk paying 100, 200, 400. You just take the chance. I, uh, some, it's interesting. They're very much, they're the opposite of risk aversive people. And uh, that may come from living on the edge or living in crisis. I'm not sure. But it's, it's there and it's quite um, disconcerting. Driving on the highway can be quite disconcerting. Nobody nobody ever uses a horn here to warn you of danger. The only time you use a horn is to try to intimidate somebody to either um, uh, um, give you a parking spot or get out of the way or whatever. So, for instance, if you want to pass somebody else, what you do is you tailgate within two feet of the car. You don't warn him. You wait for him to look in the mirror and get alarmed. 
and then move to the side that they can let you through. But never, like if you're um, backing out of a driveway and the car is passing by, they will never warn you. And I've had it. I've been counting on it. I've hit somebody, not very high speed. I've hit somebody. And the guy just basically went right around me. Pedestrians, if you're parking, a pedestrian will walk right behind you without warning you. And they expect you to be vigilant. Um, so it's hard to explain. It's hard yeah. to explain. Uh, yeah, well, no yeah, well I, I, hope, I hope I've given you, I know that uh, you're always looking for new uh, vistas to spread your research net over, and maybe this is hope. Maybe this conversation has planted some ideas in your mind to uh, take from your speculation here into maybe hard data. Because I know that's 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 what where you live. I'll just end with the possibility. Just building on what you said is that especially if you have someone who has had uh, let's let, let's face it, exciting, maybe nerve wracking. But life-affirming um, adventures in the army, where they were, um, you know, rooting out a terrorist nest, and even though they were taking their life in their hand, their their sense of victory, their sense of accomplishment, their sense of doing something exciting, and being able to talk about it more than just you know a plebeian uh, life, maybe that is exhibited by these risks, these mini risks that they're taking, the thrill of that risk um, it, it, it makes them feel, makes someone who has been in a, in a wartime or in a battle situation, it makes, it makes them come alive. It makes them feel, although they're creating this artificial situation, but the victory of, of being able to pass that guy on the right, on the cliff, gives them that same adrenaline of I did it, and and maybe that's perhaps what they're suffering from. Uh, countries that that don't have uh, their population that have sorted, you know, that have become war- connected to war and connected to terror. You know, what they would like to nothing more than is to just have a little bit of peace and calm. So I don't know if that's uh, if you can throw that in. I think that uh, I think that might be a possibility as well. Totally armchair, as we say in the yeshiva welt, completely. However, uh, I do want to wish you in your forays out when you do have to get the car from the garage, drive only in the safest possible way and make sure that uh, uh, you can stay with the program and hopefully you'll be able to, uh, uh, to, to visit all the people you need to do in the, in the safest possible way. And I hope the... Uh, Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.